Hello and welcome to this edition of the Retail Tech Review. Sorry we've been away for a little while, but much like football, we are now coming home. Um, I had to say that. We've got uh, Joe Rawlick uh, with us here today, who is General Manager for EMEA or Bizarre Voice. Joe, welcome. Yeah, thanks very much. Glad to be here. Uh, and as usual, Lindsay Roundtree, Head of Content for Retail Tech News is here. Hello. And I'm Hugh Williams and I'm Editor for Retail Tech News. Um, so our first topic today is um it's kind of I, w- I would say i wouldn't say it's more of a less of a story than a, than a than a theme that we're seeing at the moment and that is uh store closures on the high street um so i think since our last recording pound world MS, and house of fraser have all announced massive closures for the coming year six months um and i'm just interested to pick your guys brains on is I guess firstly, is there something in common with with what we're seeing? Because obviously, Poundworld and M and S, very very different stores. But is there a common theme that is underlying uh, these closures? Don't know who wants to take that one first. I mean, if, I guess if I kick it off, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of uh, kind of House of Fraser specifically. I remember when it first came out that they were kind of going to CVA and trying to work out what to do. The main reason that was cited as why they are struggling as a business is that they kind of missed the boat on on the, the e-commerce side of things and they didn't ramp up quickly enough they didn't have the right infrastructure um, and they weren't able to kind of take it forward the way that they needed to to be able to then make the in-store side of things work as well and i mean pound world I'm pretty sure pound world hasn't got an e-commerce arm to it maybe it does i'm, I'm not gonna lie i hadn't actually heard, heard no, of pound world until they were closing stores oh so. well i mean pound land i've pound heard land, of, but pound, pound structure world. yeah pound, exactly yeah, pound world's pretty big mm. yeah um i don't think they've got an e-commerce arm but i wonder if could have if you to survive in retail do you need to have a really really strong e-commerce offering as well and somehow be able to tie those two in together um yeah i mean that's just the way that i see it just from kind of i remember from what i was reading about house of fraser and exactly yeah, why they are struggling so much I mean, I think that's right. I got, you know, I think there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind for me. And the first one is I feel like every, you know, we all, we see these headlines and we go, retail's in trouble. You'll see things like, is retail dying? And if you actually step back far enough and you look at the data, well, retail as an industry is actually growing, right? Uh, no, e-commerce is surging. E- to your point, e-commerce is, you know, is growing incredibly um, and then you'll hear comments like, well, it's, you know, it's all Amazon. And the reality is that while somebody like Amazon is growing, you know, they're not the only one growing the e-commerce market. Um, you know, it's just on a secular basis, it's growing. But the, just the, if you sort of take that as fact and you say retail actually is growing, but these retailers that you know, a lot of us have grown up with and have known for a long time, some of them are really in trouble right now. I think kind of the truth is that uh, it's, it is massively a time of change and i think you're right it's 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 folks who were maybe too late to start to make those investments and start to make those pivots um i do struggle a little bit to figure out like what is the exact common thread between you know between those three i'm not sure that there's like there's that there's that one single thing because i think you have to really get into how do people shop in these different categories but i actually think the one to me the ones that's interesting is kind of house of fraser MS, you know which is um, sort of, you know, um, retailers that have a giant catalog of products where, you know, the proposition to the shopper was you can get in your car, you can go there, you can get a range of different items that you might be interested in. So it's convenience. In some cases, it's value. Uh, but those are like convenience and value are things that are totally changing in their definition in the online world, right? I can find not just 
4,000 brands, but I could find, you know, infinite number of brands almost in the online space. And I can price compare, I can find incredible value. And so I think, you know, the, the contrast is you have retailers who are finding ways to create really differentiated value in store and experience, uh, a, you know, a social connection, a reason to, a reason to come out of your car and come out of your home. Uh, that's not just about value and selection. Yeah. So are we, I guess, less less the pound world, more with M&S and House of Fraser here. Are we going to see them survive? Is, is this going to be the end of them or is this the start of a pivot? So they're going to, we, we said it just then, they've been behind in terms of updating their e-commerce offerings and their online offerings. Is this now that they're closing down the stores, are they now going to pivot onto into an online model or is this going to be the start of a longer demise? I don't know. I think back to Woolworths and kind of it was heartbreaking for me as having grown up with Woolworths in this country. Um, they obviously closed down. They then relaunched with the online only proposition. And I don't think it lasted very long, didn't work. It wasn't the same experience as people used to love going in store to Woolworths. And that was kind of why people loved it so much, the closing down and offering that stuff online. Well, everything they're offering, I can just get from Amazon, unfortunately. And that's kind of the way it works. And I think, you know, if you look at House of Fraser specifically, unfortunately, you know, as a department store, they have a differentiation in the, in the fact that they are this massive high street force that, you know, is able, you're able to go in there and buy everything. And in most, in most towns in the UK, you're gonna, either going to have a House of Fraser or a John Lewis. Some of the bigger cities, you'll have both. But, you, you know, that is a place you would go to. From the online perspective, what brands does House of Fraser sell that I can't then go to one other store or multiple stores and get the same thing, probably for cheaper, probably get it delivered more quickly. That's where House of Fraser needs to work out how they can differentiate to be able to survive in the online market, is, is my opinion. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think we kind of know the reality is there whether... So first of all, I'm rooting for both of these retailers. I want yeah. them to I want them to come through on the other side yeah. and have a lot of success. Um, but I think we know the fact is there are some retailers that won't make it through. We kind of know that because we've seen the headlines of a Toys R Us, you know, um, or a map. I mean, we've seen examples of that. But I think that they're doing the smart thing, which is to actually say, how does our... You know, how does our consumer actually want to shop? And the reality is our consumer may not want to go in store anymore, you know, to the extent. So the smart thing to do right now is to make some of these harder trade-offs, I think, and these harder decisions to really kind of re retrench yourself. In some ways, getting smaller is an opportunity to like to make a faster turn. I think the question and I really believe in retail right now, this is the moment of making big bets. Like this is the time where the rewards will come for a retailer who's willing to say, you know, we are going to we are going to go through true transformation. We're not going to incrementally get our way there, meaning we're not going to incrementally try to make our our mobile experience a bit better next year and our, you know, our online experience a bit better. We're going to go for, you know, for really big disruption. So I was, you know, sitting with a large retailer last week in a country outside of the UK, um, in Europe, and they were talking they have really what sounds almost like wild ambitions to deliver um, a uh, essentially, you know, Amazon Prime style service across their entire country where you could you could order something and they would use their network of stores to be able to fulfill on it in a couple of hours. And so I think that's I go, wow, that's a really big bet out there. But I think those are the kind of bets um, that this is sort of the right time and place for. And in a lot of ways, it's a really exciting time for retail as a result of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Moving on to our second topic, um, which this week is the news that Google has teamed up with JD.com in China. Um, and the investment's going to be about $550 million. Um, and this, this is going to help JD.com expand beyond its space in China and Southeast Asia. And on the flip side, it's going to help Google gain a little bit of an edge on Amazon in a market that Amazon hasn't done that well on in the past. Um, I think my first question here is, is is this a significant investment? Because there are a lot of... Uh, the, the, the money in APAC is different to the money here in terms of investments. And $550 million is a lot of money. But, I mean, Alibaba are throwing around that sort of money as well. And is this... Is is this is this newsworthy basically? I mean, didn't Alibaba throw around? Didn't invest double that? Didn't by do invest double that in Alibaba? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or something like that. Yeah. So it kind of feels like, come on, Google, stump up a bit more yeah. cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is that what you think you're going yeah. to be able to? If you're not going to break a billion, invest? is it well, even? Well, what's the point? Even worth in, it? Yeah, that's all they talk about is billions <laughs> in APAC. Yeah. I mean, the question. I, so, by the way, I think this is. I think it is exciting. I mean, I agree. It may not be the dollar figure. <laughs> The pound figure, but I think it's the it's the question is can they use this as a strategic partnership? Mm. Not just to I mean, yeah, Google wants to have a foot in China and at the moment, you know, they're not used in China and um, you know, and obviously J D wants expansion outside of China. But I also think like the part to me that is, is really interesting is Amazon you know, Google is this place of search. They make their money because we go to Google and say, Give me information about this. But the thing that's starting to happen, it's certainly happening in the US, is that people when it comes to shopping, information about products, people are not going to Google as much as they once were. They're going to Amazon, you know, and because they want to find content on these products and you know, and they see Amazon as as the source. So that is that is a real threat, I think. If you're Google, and so trying to get closer to commerce, closer to the shopping experience, is I think a potentially a strategic bet. I mean, we'll see where they take this. You know, well they've made the investment in um, Carrefour as well recently, yep. a partnership with Carrefour in France as well, haven't they? So it looks like, long term, they are making making investment in in retail, and maybe that's that's the reason get closer to the customer. I think I think that's it. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, Google's an advertising business. You could argue that Amazon is an advertising business and not a retailer in terms of where their margin comes from. You know, Facebook is an advertising business. And so these, these, in some ways, really dominant companies, I think, are trying to move towards advertising dollars. And I believe advertising dollars are moving closer to commerce yeah. as, you know, as commerce, uh, you know, really, really starts to live online. Um, and so I think that's partly what they're what they're kind of chasing towards is get me by commerce. I mean, get me closer to where people are not just searching for what to do this weekend, but searching for what to buy yeah. this weekend. It feels like it could be a bit of a tip for tap model in terms of the, the data that each company holds on the consumer being able to kind of round mm, that out yeah. because it's very, very different types of That's data, right. but it's it's customer centric, but in a very, very different way, kind of what Google has versus say what Carrefour or what JD.com has. And if you look at kind of the play the telcos are making globally and telcos have got extremely rich data and kind of the the acquisitions they're making and the partnerships they're making just in the, in the space in general, you sort of feel like actually the likes of Google, the likes of Baidu could do really well looking at retail because they can actually have access to much richer data and almost compete with what the what the telco the, the game the telcos are playing at the moment too well the, i mean the last thing i would say on this is i think we are going to see this huge age of partnerships in a very different way i think as people again as people are willing to make bigger bets you're going to see many more interesting partnerships so i mean you know i think okado and kroger um which is you know kroger's second largest grocer in the u.s 
um, and partnering with, you know, with Ocado also making an investment kind of similar to the Google JD deal, but really about how do they leverage, you know, their, their joint IP to your point, their very different forms of data and understanding of the shopper and expertise. I mean, I think this is like, I think retail is going from a world where, you know, you put walls up around your, around your, your shopper and, um, and your data and your space to a world where you're going to have to partner and work more in the collective in order to succeed. Which is very exciting. I think that's a yeah. really, really interesting state of play. And I'm, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens with that. I mean, even interested in your perspective on if you think a lot of Western money is going east, because that's what the opportunity is. It's morning it was announced that the, the, the Boots Walgreen Alliance, obviously the, the massive pharmacy and beauty chain, have invested in a Chinese pharmacist called, I think it's called Gaudo or something. They've invested invested in that to help them expand in China and expand beyond China, that gives them a massive play, that, that gives Boots Ball Green a massive play in kind of the APAC region as well, gives the Chinese pharmacy an, an opportunity to kind of go beyond their, their boundaries at the moment. I think that's kind of, that, that's an interesting thing too. And it plays into the fact that, you know, Walmart, for example, is a massive investor in JD.com. So actually Google investing in JD would help Walmart out. And Walmart is a competitor of Walgreens and to a certain extent. It's kind of, it's all very... Yeah. Well, I think China is, I mean, China's the opportunity. It's like, it's really, I mean, we work with a lot of uh, global brands, you know, manufacturers, so not retailers, where they're kind of tracking basically where is commerce, you know, where is the money being spent? And their eyes are all focused on China. You know, that is that is the prize. And I think it's such a different way of shopping, though, at the moment. You know, it's um, the and obviously there are versions of it, but the you know, the marketplaces. And if you even think about, you know, we're we spend a lot of time looking at things like ratings and reviews because that's our core competency. Well, I mean, I've spent time in China, you know, and looking at how does JD do ratings and reviews or Alibaba. It is, you know, it's very different. Your average product is going to have 7,000, 9,000, 12,000 reviews on it. Super different from, you know, what we would yeah. see here, 30, 40, 50 reviews. And so it's just, it is a huge prize in a totally different ecosystem. Yeah, it seems like the sort of place where if you don't have local expertise or you're not partnering with somebody who has local expertise yes. and you might struggle and maybe that's why amazon have struggled because they rolled out amazon china and obviously that was a failure whereas google are investing in in jd and they're, they're basically buying the expertise rather than actually that's trying right. to go in themselves um cool our last topic is um moving down under and that's that prime has arrived amazon prime that is, has arrived in australia um, and this awful. is that wasn't awful yes, and this is just weeks ahead or I can do better but it's a podcast Lindsay, so I'm not going to rise to that um, um, and yeah the news is that uh, Prime's rolling out in Australia and this is just weeks ahead of a policy change that's going to block um, Australian customers shopping on Amazon sites uh, because of a new tax that's being added so uh, 10% is going to be added on in terms of tax to all products that are coming into Australia so Amazon is scaling it down, um, but that kind of, I guess, goes against introducing Prime because then that's expanding their service. Um, so I, I was just wondering if we think this is, if, is it a risk introducing Prime at a stage when Australian customers are going to be spending less on overseas products? And um, yeah, when this amount they're going to be able to offer on Prime isn't as much as they would in the UK or the US. Well, does it mean that they're going to start then building greater infrastructure in Australia as well so that they have the warehousing capabilities to be able to supply local products? And also, if you think about what a Prime subscription is, it's, it's now so much more than just what you can buy on Amazon. You've got 
audio, TV, uh, cloud storage. What else have you got on Amazon Prime? I should know as a avid avid member um but there's so much more than that and maybe they're trying to to play that angle instead i don't know it's it's interesting well i think it's i think you know if i'm amazon i see australia as if i i see australia as a market that has more similarities versus differences to the markets i've been successful in Mm -hmm. you know so if you look at you know us uk germany um, you know, you see countries that have this really traditional retail landscape, you know, heritage retailers who sometimes can be slower to make those changes. And I think that's where Amazon's had a lot of success. So I'm not um, and I think the English language bit, you know, helps as well. So I'm not surprised that they continue to get focused on it. But um, but I also think, you know, I think like the geography of Australia is a real challenge um, in terms of the, you know, the convenience factor. Um, and I also like I just I, this is not scientific, but I spend a fair amount of time there. And, you know, I think that there is culturally a real value on, um, you know, on some of the local brands and the local retail experiences. And um, and I think that may make it more difficult for Amazon than they initially think, because I think that I think at the end of the day, a lot of consumers do place value on you know, on the the connection to the, you know, the local retail establishments yeah. there. Do, do we think that's something, sorry, do we, do we think that's something Amazon's been guilty of in the past and going into a market and not having the cultural sensitivity and just being like, we've done so well in America and in Britain that we're just going to take this model and it's basically trying to fit a square in a <laughs> triangle-shaped hole. Yes, but in a china shop. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, all the analogies. Yeah, that's any, any more we can work with. I, I, I certainly think so. I think Amazon, uh, I think Amazon, they just launch in a market with a bit blindly and then they kind of find their feet. And it works sometimes. Sometimes it works extremely well. Other times, less so. Um, I think they, that's where they've struggled in APAC. Mind you, in Singapore, Amazon is doing fairly well. Like everyone in Singapore, if you speak to anyone in Singapore, they're very, very happy with the service they get from Amazon. Um, but they struggle in that market too. And, and Singapore is a very, very expat community. But it's one tiny, tiny market out of the entire kind of APAC region. There's so much more Amazon could do, but I think they're not necessarily tackling it in the right way. Right. Well, I think the other thing is like, so we all, I mean, it's a sort of, at, it's this dichotomy in my opinion. Because I think with Amazon, like you said, you know, like we all in some ways find this great convenience and you know, and, and like can get hooked on to one more feature of Prime and, um, you know, and just how easy that is to go access. And at the same time, I think like people want choice. Like I do, I believe that's fundamental to um, just to kind of how human beings operate is that we want choice. And so I think there is at some point you go, whoa, hold on, my whole life is starting to get lived through Amazon. Like I'm not entirely comfortable with that. Um, or, you know, or I want to, I want to have other experiences. And so, I kind of think there's going to be this balancing out in some ways. I mean, it's not that I think Amazon's going to struggle by any means, but I think I just think there's a lot of room for other retailers to really thrive in the same environment, basically. Which is very positive. Amazon is not the yeah. the, the, the dominant force in in these markets in certain areas. There is opportunity for the smaller. Yeah, companies they're introducing to more change. I think just the fear of Amazon gets people to get, gets retailers to think a little bit differently yeah. and think a little bit bolder, which is maybe not a bad thing. But, um, you know, but I don't, again, I don't see it as, um, I don't see it as an all or nothing. Mm, kick up the backside. Yeah. I also question the Australia 10% tax. Um, I don't know how big Australia is as a market to Alibaba, but I do know that before Amazon launched in Australia, you speak to any Australian, uh, they'd go, well, we, all we had was access to Alibaba. So that was what we'd use to, to get all of our stuff kind of internationally. 
because it was more local to them than Amazon ever was. So I wonder if that would actually impact Alibaba as well, because I know that there's a lot of people that are very wedded to Alibaba as a kind of global yeah. distribution chain. It's an interesting move. Maybe they've maybe since Amazon have come in, they've strengthened their internal retail maybe. structure and they back themselves now. Mm. Um, cool. Right, moving on to the the second half of the podcast, um, and regular listeners will know that this is where we find out a little bit more about um, our guests' business. Um, so, Joe, you've been with Bizarre Voice for eight years, I think you were saying. Yeah, almost uh, almost yes. nine years now. Wow. You can tell from the voice. <laughs> yeah. They're not, yeah. not from here yeah. originally. But the passion's uh, still there. Um, yeah, true. <laughs> so, I, I it's guess, like a good you, marriage. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you start by giving us a little bit of uh, a little bit of an insight into how the technology works? Yeah, I mean the one thing I say to people is like you you probably never heard of Bizarre Voice, but you've almost certainly used us. In fact, more than a billion people a month use Bizarre Voice technology as they shop. And so, you know, if you are shopping online, and you know, I think of you know retailers in the UK, like many of the ones we've already talked about today. But you know, anybody from uh, you know John Lewis to an Argos, you as you read. Uh, consumer reviews, questions from consumers, photos from consumers, you're likely using our technology. It's a software platform that allows these retailers to collect social content that ultimately gives people the confidence to purchase. Um, And then we have another arm of our business that's really working with brands. I mentioned we work with a lot of global brands. So that would be like, you know, somebody like uh, uh, Unilever or, um, you know, could be a, a, a more emerging brand like a Charlotte Tilbury. And how do they engage their consumers also generate this kind of compelling content, uh, but publish it to their retailers yeah. so that people see it at the moment of purchase? The brand side of things is interesting. It's something we've been talking quite a lot about recently, the direct to consumer brands, because I don't think a few years ago, you would have said, it would have been retailers collecting the customer reviews and, right. and the brands oh, themselves and the retailers. Yeah. But now, you, you mentioned the brands there just actually do it, doing it themselves and collecting their own data as well. It's interesting. Yeah, well, like I mentioned earlier that I think, you know, brands who are really the big advertisers in the world are moving more and more of their focus towards commerce. So I think, you know, if you look at even these really traditional large brand organizations, they're starting to staff up teams around e-commerce, um, teams around digital commerce, it's all going to have you know different terminology. But a lot of those teams start with what kind of information and content do our shoppers want before they make their purchase, regardless of where they're going to buy it. So regardless of whether they're going to buy it from us or they're going to buy it at you know, at a retailer, or they're going to search online, you know, on Google for it. How do we make sure they have the right information there? And so that's why they are investing in areas like, you know, making sure they've got, you know, got great review content, making sure they've, uh, you know, they've got whatever sort of kind of trusted information the consumer is going to need. And then I think alongside of that, you do have brands who are realizing that direct-to-consumer may be an important part of their strategy. You know, some brands have been really public about that. I think Adidas is one of the most compelling. You know, they are they are massively ambitious about how they're looking to grow their direct-to-consumer business uh, because they think, you know, I think they believe that they have a, a really unique brand proposition and one where the consumer would actually value going to have you that, that direct relationship with them. Yeah, definitely. So in, in terms of the, the technology, is it something that you think drives or is it that you see drives mostly sales online or it does also have an effect on brick and mortar stores as well how and how do you track that i mean it's it 
we know it has an effect on both. I think like, you know, the first point is is online and that one is sort of obvious because it's hard nowadays to imagine doing anything from making a purchase to booking a restaurant or a hotel without reading reviews first. Um, and, you know, and it's also quantitatively really easy to measure. So I think our latest, you know, our latest index across our, we work with 6,000 brands and retailers is that when people are reading reviews online, they're 106% more likely to convert than when they don't read reviews. But um, I think it is having an impact offline. And this is because like we are becoming, we're like, we're no longer the online person or the offline person. We're just people who do a combination of shop for things online and shop for things offline. And so one way we measure that is we run this study called uh, the Robo Study once a year where 45 of our global retailers participate. And they basically ask people who've made purchases both in-store and online, uh, you know, did you read reviews to help inform this purchase beforehand? And we've seen the amount that read reviews before buying in-store grow year over year. It's now at 45% or maybe it's 46%, but, you know, right in the mid 40 percentile of people who buy in-store and say that they read reviews first. And I think that may be that they're in-store just quickly checking on their phone. You know, okay, what do other people say about this product? Um, Or it may be that they're shopping, you know, or browsing at home to kind of narrow the selection in advance. Obviously, that changes a lot by category. You know, I think um, if you're, you know, if you're buying uh, biscuits, you're probably, you know, you're probably less likely to research it at home before you go in-store. Um, although grocery is definitely changing. But if you imagine, you know, I thought like the most interesting category to me was DIY. Uh, um, we saw that the number of people who read reviews uh, online before buying in store went from, I believe, 33% to 66% between 2016 and 2017. So just, you know, a huge change there. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So our, our, our fake reviews an issue is, is that. Is there, are, are there systems that can generate fake reviews and how, how do you deal with that? Sort yes, of, sort of yes. Thing? Unfortunately, yes. there are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's such, like, it's such... It'd be too easy, though, weren't it? Yeah, so, no, yeah. It, it is an issue and it's actually, it's really important because, uh, you know, reviews, in my opinion, are just are essentially a form of word of mouth. So it's basically people saying, yeah, you know, I tried this product and it's not perfect, but it's really good and this is the only downside to it. And so... We've always used word of mouth way before the internet and way before e-commerce and so, but in the world of e-commerce, reviews have become important to us and brands have understood the value of those reviews, both small and big. And as a result of that, there is a form of fraud basically that, you know, that exists in terms of fake reviews. So there's anything from like the comical, I mean, a lot of people, you know, here in, in London certainly have seen there was a... Um, a, I think it was on Yelp or, um, or Open Table. It was a fake restaurant a guy created um, in his garden. That oh, yeah, was, I love the story. Right. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was all like very artistic pictures of, That's brilliant. you know, of his food. His garden and, shed, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, in his garden shed. It became, it became like the top rated, uh, you know, top rated restaurant in London. And so, so you kind of have the absurd, but that just proves the point that it exists. But then on a much broader level, you do have, you have, you know, fake review farms and, um, and bots. And so, so it's an issue. And I think, you know, look, I, the bottom line is you just want to be smart if you are a brand or a retailer. I think not doing anything in reviews because you're worried about fake reviews is probably not the right solution because it's not what the consumer wants. But there are ways to safeguard yourself. So like, you know, we, like we take an approach that does a combination of 
using fraud detection technology, the same thing a credit card processor would use to look for patterns of fraudulent behavior to human moderators. So we have a you know workforce of human moderators who are also, you know, looking for that kind of behavior. And then also, you know, we just we have guardrails so we don't allow our customers to moderate out positive versus negative reviews. You know, we think that the the point around consumer trust is that you're you're looking for an honest opinion on on this product or this service. Yeah, you don't trust reviews that you see they've got all five stars right. and just like excellent, excellent. Well, the excellent. funniest thing I think is like we we do these studies sometimes where we watch people shop and number one thing they do is they say are there enough reviews for me to even just look deeper at this product, right? And then the second thing they do is they try to filter by show me one-star reviews or show me negative reviews first. Because they, to exactly your point, they want to go, is it real? And assuming that it's real and I can find those reviews, you know, what's the worst case scenario about this product? It makes sense because if there's something bad about the product, which is <laughs> going to be a deal breaker, you want to know it early on, don't you? You want to know it so. early on. or And I think that part of it is, you know, a lot of it is just qualifying. It's... Yeah. This restaurant is so loud, I could barely hear a conversation. Well, if I'm going out with my mates and we're looking for a fun night out, that might be just fine. Um, but it's really different from you know celebrating my anniversary. And and so we're just looking for that kind of context yeah. a lot of the time, I think. Yeah, exactly. I'm interested as well. So if if, if brands are, so, so say, um, let me have a think, New Balance are selling their shoes on Foot Locker, and there's a review bit for the the New Balance shoes on Foot Locker. Is it is it hard for New Balance to then get that data, or is is Foot Locker keeping that data? And is there a good um, system for them to transfer what's what's being said? Uh, yeah, I think you see a combination of that. I mean, we think that the future. I talked a little bit about partnerships earlier. Like we really believe that the future is about um, greater transparency and partnerships between suppliers, brands, and retailers. Because if you think about exactly the question you just asked, like why would why would Foot Locker not want New Balance to understand how to improve their products? You know, what what is the next color that consumers are asking for? Like that should that should be beneficial to both parties. Um, and I think again you just see this transition happening. You know, when I started this business nine years ago, it was like, no, we will not we will not share this. And today for the most part you see uh, you honestly see a really good amount of, of sharing and we're building out more technology capabilities to automate that and to yeah. make it easier. So I, I think what, uh, well, I, I think we discussed this quite a lot in the office as well, actually on Amazon, we, we, we have a bit of a mistrust of Amazon sometimes. Um, Slightly, but yeah. we obviously their, their private label business is, is very up and coming, but it, I, it will one, one day be huge across n- numerous categories and they've got so much, customer review data on the products that are being bought on their site that they can take that data and build their own product that is better and then just own the whole the whole system obviously in a footlock and new balance scenario that that wouldn't happen but um that is that i think that's surely a concern on amazon at least well definitely and you think about like i mean this is kind of the story of amazon in a lot of ways so amazon can personalize a lot of your experience because they have a lot of data about you right but they only know about you on amazon um, they don't know, you know, everything else that you're doing. And so, again, we, like, even if we think about anything relating to data, whether it's insights or personalization, we think, again, a lot of the opportunity is co-opting more of that data as a collaborative. So, you know, 
Amazon still does not see, while they have a lot of data on you and a lot of data on their products, they don't see the majority of shopping in the UK. Yeah. Uh, you know, most of that shopping is spread across hundreds and thousands of other retailers. And so we think one of the transformative opportunities is for retailers to partner and brands to partner together more of that data um, ultimately to go so that they can go create more unique experiences that actually understand, you know, the product or who you are in a broader sense than Amazon does. Do you think there's a bit of, not defensiveness, but a bit of um, protectiveness over their data when we talk about this kind of we talk about the second party data relationship you know quite a lot it's you're each sharing each other your own first party data with something somebody that's not competing with you but is actually partnering with you why wouldn't you want to share that data more frequently and in kind of in a, in a more meaningful and effective way with that partner to ensure that you're both actually doing the best thing yeah. for the most important thing which is the consumer well my like my own personal <laughs> take on this is i believe that the the his, more historic brand to retailer or seller to merchant relationship was one of negotiation mm. you know and and obviously that's still part of it you know it's a these are sales and buying roles but I think that the the newer version of it is one of collaboration. I think you really do see a change there, and you see, and it's, and there are rewards for that collaboration. So how do we go grow the category together? How do we go grow our brands together versus how do we negotiate against each other? And when you make that shift, all of a sudden you're open to sharing. And I will just tell you, I mean, we see. Uh, we see a tremendous amount of sharing of content and data from you know, incredibly large and well-established brands and retailers today, which is something that was not happening, you know, that we facilitate across our network that was not happening mm. even five or six years ago. And what, what are you seeing in terms of regional splits in, te in terms of customer reviews? Because you started in the US and I over in the UK and you were talking earlier actually to me about the expansion plans. And are, are there... Are there differences in terms of how reviews work across all these regions that you that you guys are seeing? Yes, I mean some of it. Like you get, you know, you get a little bit of the cultural differences on things. Like are folks more um, more positive by nature, or you know, or like or biased a little yeah. bit more towards the negative? And I actually think that like that one is not so important because at the end of the day, like if you're if folks are more biased towards the negative, then other shoppers in that country understand that as well. You know, they understand that essentially a three-star review is really a four-star review because that's culturally just the way that in which people communicate. You're referring to the UK because we're inherently extremely negative. You know what's funny is <laughs> I, I was wondering which countries. <laughs> I think you, UK might win on like on best, you know, best humor in reviews, but, um, but no, it's actually like, it's actually yeah. not as negative. You know, we like, we do an index on this and it's, it's actually not that negative, but you see other, you know, other countries that are, I think the the biggest thing that we see is just difference in maturity in terms of readiness to not just adopt reviews, but kind of adopt truly transparent customer centric uh, capabilities. And so you see, like I see in you know, my responsibility is Europe and APAC, and I see this kind of maturity curve. So I actually see the UK um, is really the leader in Europe in terms of uh, consumer expectation and retailer capability there and then you can see other you know i see i'm very excited about what's happening in germany right now i think germany is really starting to um to open up in terms of retailers saying we need to transform what we're doing that might be a catalyst from amazon but we need to transform what we're doing to be more authentic and then the thing that we've got 
at the same time, like we're all trying to kind of deal with is, is like what are the best ways to handle data, to handle privacy, to handle transparency, uh, you know, in, in light of the, you know, kind of current regulations and current concerns that are out there. Yeah. Do you have a session on Friday afternoons where you read out the funniest reviews? So we, uh, so we, yes, it's every other Friday we do our, we do our gong and we do reviews the week. So that's yeah, brilliant. That's so funny. <laughs> right. That. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to end it there because I'm out of my water and this Good. room is getting hotter and hotter <laughs> by the minute. Um, Joe's actually going to be on stage at RTS London on the 17th of July doing a keynote on uh, is retail dying and thriving simultaneously. So if you want to hear more, you can sign up for that. Um, and in the meantime, Joe and Lindsay, thank you very much. And we will see you next time.